Attention all researchers, predictors, cappers, and analysts. The MMA Fight Archive is here. What is it, you ask? It is a database with direct links to prior fights of pretty much every fighter that has been active as of 2022. Upon launch, there are over a thousand fighter profiles available on it for you, but the eventual goal is to be the largest of, it, largest of its kind uh, on the internet. I am regularly adding fighter profiles to it with the emphasis of attacking uh, upcoming events from the major organizations throughout the world. Like I said, there are already a thousand, over a thousand fighter profiles on it to get you guys started, but I will continuously be adding to ensure that it is the biggest within the next couple months. But it will have everything that you need, and again, the big selling point of it being direct links to past fights. Obviously, it's really good for prospects and really good for the regional scene, but if you just want a one-stop shop to pull up a page and have everything ready there for you, this is exactly what that is going to be. Now I get it, you guys, if you've been following me long enough, know that I've been doing this in the past, but I've broken off and I'm doing my own thing now and adding some more wrinkles to the game, which is having every fighter profile available to you at any point. So even if they don't have an upcoming fight, you can search up their name and do some research, run the tape, whatever you want to do about them. And the other aspect being that I'm covering way more promotions so that we can try to cover as many fighters with the goal of doing every fighter that's competed on some of the biggest stages that MMA has to have, even on the regional scene. As a thank you to you guys, and upon launching this, I've added a Pioneer tier to the subscription service, which will save you 25% of the lifetime of your subscription. There are only 20 spots available for that. I obviously gave my Patreon members a bit of an early access, so they're already getting a jump start on it. But as soon as this podcast releases on noon of Monday, I'll add another 20 spots for anybody looking to take advantage of those savings as well. I appreciate any and all support that you guys want to throw at this MMA Fight Archive. It is my baby. It is something that I am looking to grow and be one of the biggest things in the world, especially in the MMA sphere. So make sure you guys check it out. Get in on the ground level because it's only going to get bigger. And I believe that it will be one of the biggest things in the MMA sphere in the next couple of years. Appreciate you guys. Now, let's get right down to the episode. Oh, yeah. Quick note. The link to the MMA Fight Archive will be in the description below or and I should say, and in the top comment, which I will pin as well. So you guys will have access to it there. Now let's get into the episode. Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over a, a pretty solid UFC 288 card headlined by a bantamweight title fight between Aljamain Sterling and former champion and returning Triple C King of Cringe, Henry Cejudo. In the Coleman event, we have a high-stakes welterweight matchup, which is scheduled for five rounds between Bilal Muhammad and Gilbert Burns. we got a bunch of other fun fights sprinkled out throughout the card, not to mention a couple fighters making their UFC debuts. A lot of fun fights to break down for you guys. I cannot wait to get down to it. As we always do, though, let's quickly go over the prediction results from last week. I believe we went 8-3 and three overall in terms of picking fighters to win, uh, but in terms of my lock of the night prediction, easily comes through with Kyle Bahayo. Again, not afraid of the chalk, especially when it's worth it, and it was clearly worth it there. And then on the regional scene for the Cage Warriors, it came through as well. That pushes our lock of the night predictions to 40-10 and 10 now, hitting at an 80% rate, which is absolutely phenomenal. We know we're in the green after that. For the dog of the night, it was Martin Budai who obviously ended up coming through. He actually closed as the favorite, but earlier in the week when I initially dropped it on the Patreon, he was the underdog, so I went with him as my dog of the night play, and it comes through. It got a little bit sticky, but he got the job done. On the regional scene for Cage Warriors, we had Ryan Shelley, who looked pretty damn good for the first little bit, but in the third round, Tobias Harilla was able to get to him and eventually finish him. It's unfortunate, but what can you do? Underdog does not come through. That pushes our underdog record to 24 and, tw or sorry, dog of the night record. Obviously, underdog is just underdogs in general, but dog of the night, it pushes it to 24 and 26. 
As a reminder, the Cage Warriors and all the regional shows that I do, LFA, Cage Warriors, PFL, uh, are all covered on the Patreon. Link in the description below if you guys want access to that. We got Cage Warriors 154 going down this week. And as of right now, there are 18 fights scheduled for it. I'll be breaking those down throughout the week and pretty much just through the best predictions article. So again, if you want access to that link in the description below, not to mention an early head start on the following UFC event, which is UFC Charlotte. Those breakdowns will start dropping on the Patreon as well at the latter half latter half of this week uh, to give you know the Patreon guys the, the first dibs on what my thoughts are, uh, especially after running the research. That's where you guys will find them. A quick reminder, if you skip through the uh, MMA Fight Archive plug at the beginning of this, I'm launching it this week. Link in the description below. Top comment, it's pinned as well. Uh, 20 spots to reserve yourself. 25% off for life once you subscribe to it. Again, if you do your own research, it is a must-have, and I promise it's going to be one of the biggest things, uh, especially with the volume of fighters that we will be having on there as well. You guys will enjoy it, especially if you do your own research. Again, 20 spots I'm opening up as soon as this podcast drops. Make sure you take full advantage of it. And lastly, just a reminder, my articles for GodzillaWins.com, the main event breakdowns usually coming out come out on Wednesdays, and then the three best uh, money line bets come out on Thursday. Links to those are in the description below as well. Show those guys some love. All right, let's quit the jibber jabber in here. Let's get right into the breakdowns. We got 14 fights to get through, so let's not waste any more time. Kicking things off in the bantamweight division, we got 10-2 Daniel Santos going up against 12-2 Johnny Munoz Jr. Kicking things off on the Daniel Santos side of things, he's coming off of a spectacular victory over John Castaneda back in October in a fight that he came in as the underdog. That was largely due to the fact that he fell short in his UFC debut at UFC 273 against Julio Arce, where he was unable to catch the very elusive Julio Arce, who was able to outstrike him and win a decision that night. I believe a lot of people held on to the fact that Daniel Santos went 21% in terms of his striking land rate on 230 significant strikes, believing that he just throws recklessly with no real intentions on hitting his opponent. However, he made that completely clear that it was not the case in his matchup against Castaneda with the way he was able to march him down eat his early shots recover very well and then put the pressure back on Castaneda eventually finishing him with a brutal knee at the ending of the second round to get his hand raised he trains out of the same gym as former lightweight champion Charles Oliveira and he only has two losses on his record right now which further proves how highly touted this kid could actually be considering his aggressiveness and consistent forward pressure not to mention his cardio and his takedown defense is pretty high level which allows him to utilize his striking and his aggress and his aggressiveness so effectively on the flip side for johnny munoz jr who's coming into this matchup as uh you know pretty i believe he's a small underdog here if i'm not mistaken but he's coming off a very solid victory over ludovic shalinian back in november now i might have to apologize to johnny munoz jr because i kind of shit on his striking last time around i thought he was mainly just a kicker who was waiting for his opportunity to eventually get fights to the ground but he showcased a very good boxing approach last time as he put together solid combinations, utilized his footwork, and utilized the forward pressure of Sholinian against him by continuously getting him to walk onto his shots. His boxing performance was very impressive, and he did gain a lot more respect for me. However, I wonder how much of that had to do with the fact that Sholinian was really not throwing much. He was moving forward. But he just wasn't throwing enough in terms of trying to get the respect from the Johnny Munoz Jr. side. But Munoz was, you know, dealt the card that he was that night or dealt the hand that he was that night and utilized it pretty well and came out relatively unscathed in that matchup. Now with the 2-2 two two record through his first four UFC fights, this is a make-or-break fight for him to determine whether he has what it takes to break into the rankings or if he's just going to be another middling uh, fighter in this division that will just 
exchange wins and losses until he eventually gets cut. I was very happy to cash the underdog ticket on Daniel Santos last time around against John Castaneda. Now he's the favorite here against Johnny Munoz Jr. And I feel like this is a spot that he can have a similar type performance. It's all going to come down to how sharp the footwork and the boxing skills of Johnny Munoz remains. Obviously, it looked really good against Shalinian, like I said, because Shalinian wasn't really throwing much in return. But I know we're going to be getting consistent offense, consistent pressure, and consistent output from Daniel Santos. We're talking about a guy that threw 230 strikes against Julio Arce. Even though he didn't land that much, it showed that he did not get discouraged from the amount of times he was missing. He just kept on the on the gas pedal and I feel like he could eventually break a guy like uh like Munoz Jr. and potentially get the finish. Violence is another spot that you could target from this. As if Munoz Jr.'s um, striking is really that good, maybe he clips Santos here and puts him out as well. But I'm going to go with the favorite here. I think Santos eventually gets the finish, probably in the second or third round. Next up in the middleweight division, we got 8-3 Joseph Holmes going up against 10-3 Claudio Hibero. Starting off on the Joseph Holmes side, he's coming off a loss to Jung Yung Park last time around in a fight that took place at the end of October. In that matchup, he got pretty much overwhelmed by the Korean fighter who was able to continuously take him down and eventually find a rear naked choke halfway through the second round of their matchup. But I really believe that people are starting to see that Joseph Holmes, not really as good of a fighter as most expected him to be when he made his UFC debut. I've long said I believe that he has had the majority of his success due to the physicality that he brings to the table with his size, with his strength, and with the power. He only has a couple decent wins, the most notable one being over Shante Barnes and then obviously over the journeyman Jonathan Patti. But we see in fights against even Jamie Pickett, who not a lot of people expect a lot of big things from or, you know, don't even think he's UFC level. Uh, Jamie Pickett was able to match the physicality of Joseph Holmes and beat him thoroughly throughout that 15-minute contest. Of course, Joseph Holmes is going to go out there and defeat the uh, cupcake tomato can that the UFC has in Alan Namadovsky. But as a quick reminder in the Jun Young Park fight that Joseph Holmes probably is not long for the UFC roster. On the flip side with Claudio Hibero, he came back off of a... Uh, or sorry, he... Uh, after winning his contender series fight back in August to earn him his contract, it only took him 25 seconds that night to earn the contract to the UFC. He ended up getting knocked out cold by Abdul Razak Al Hassan in the second round of their fight back in January. Now, with this fight being his second uh, walk to the octagon in 2023, Hibero is looking to get his hand raised for the first time in the octagon as a UFC fighter. In that fight against uh, Razak Al-Hassan, he was nullified up against the cage and wasn't really able to utilize his flashy, unorthodox striking approach, which allowed Razak Al-Hassan to eventually expose him in that second round, take advantage of the fact that he wore on him in the first round, and knock out Claudio Hibero. Hibero, again, a very entertaining fighter, a lot of spinning moves, a lot of flying techniques, uh, always looking to take your head off. The majority of his wins coming in that first round by starching his opponents relatively quickly. However, when he does get dragged into deep waters, that's when things start to get a little bit sticky for him. I get it. He does have a fifth round TKO stoppage on his record, but we do have to remember that his opponent that night was an aging fighter who had a 24 and 20 record. Hibeto is a fun fighter i'd like to call him the poor man's um michelle Pereira, but i just don't know uh how much of uh, longevity he has in the ufc given some of the technical shortcomings he has in his game look for flashing techniques from this muay thai specialist but that's really about it this is an ugly fight like i don't like joseph holmes at all i'm going to be siding with claudio hibero here but given how wacky and reckless and unorthodox hibero can be at times he is susceptible to getting clipped and finished himself but i am going to lean with hibero here i think his speed and his kicks will be a little bit too much for holmes i think he's going to be like i said too fast for joseph holmes here i think he has more tricks up his sleeve than the more you know rudimentary style of joseph holmes here and like 
like I said earlier, I do not think that Holmes is UFC caliber. Neither is Hibero, but I think that Hibero is just, you know, a notch or two better better than him at this point. I'm expecting a finish no matter who it comes from. So maybe the chalky fight doesn't go to decision could be the way to go here. But I'm going to be going with Hibero, and I think he secures this victory by knockout. Next up in the flyweight division, we have Rafael Esteban coming in with an 11-0 record going up against Zalgas Zhumagulov, who has a 14-8 record. Starting off on the contender series signee side here, Rafael Esteban, he was able to win via ground and pound in the second round of his matchup back in September to secure his UFC contract. That moved his record to a flashy 11-0, where he showcased a very good aggressive style to get the majority of his wins coming via stoppage. He's a very solid fighter that likes to crash forward, take his opponents to the mat, and do big damage from on top, which is exactly what he did to Joao Elias. We did not see that fight play out in the striking realm whatsoever, as any time that they were at distance, it was just a matter of time before Estevam was able to crash that pocket and get the fight to the ground, where he clearly had a giant advantage over his opponent. It's going to be interesting to see how that style translates to the UFC with him facing more resistance now and guys that may not be as easy to take down. And we will likely see what his striking game is like, which is something that we don't really see a whole lot of, especially considering how much of a knack he has in terms of a knack for taking fights to the mat where he does his best work. He also trains out of the Novo Uniao training camp, similar to Jose Aldo when he used to compete in mixed martial arts. So we know he has a good training camp and good good coaching staff to help him round out his game. On the flip side, for Zalgas Zumagulov, he has a very unfortunate UFC record to this point. If you were to have told me that he would be 1-5 through his first six UFC matchups, I would tell you you're a liar. Mainly for the fact that that means that there is probably a three-fight losing streak sprinkled in there somewhere, which he is currently on, but... He is on a uh, two-fight, well, three-fight losing streak, but his last two losses have come via split decision. Uh, I believe a lot of people think he deserves to have won the Jeff Molina and Charles Johnson fights, but he did not end up coming out on top that night. I believe he, out of just uh, impulse, ended up retiring the night of the Charles Johnson fight, but it seems like the UFC is still willing to do business with him, which is why he ends up fighting this weekend, and more than likely will try to prove himself in this seemingly last shot with the UFC. Zumagulov was a regional champion over there in Russia with some big wins on his record over guys like Tyson Nam, Tagir Ulenbekov, and even former title challenger Ali Bagautinov. He's a solid striker who likes to move forward, crash the pocket with big combinations, a barrage of punches to try to knock his opponent down, or if he wants to take a grapple-heavy approach, that is absolutely something that he has up its sleeve that he can use effectively. He just has to figure out a way to distance himself from his opponents because, sure, we can say that he won those Molina and Johnson fights, but he didn't do much in terms of really separating himself from his opponent that night. There were close fights, and again, as many people as they want can say that Zhumugulov deserved the win, there was never really a clear moment where we're like, okay, yep, Zhumugulov deserves the victory for sure. Let's see if he can make those changes this weekend against the Contender Series debutante. I'm expecting a mean streak from Zalgas Zhumagulov this week. Knowing that he's on a three-fight losing streak and knowing that this is likely his last chance to save his spot on the UFC roster, he's going to be coming forward with a lot of heat. I expect his grappling to work effectively here for him defensively so that he can keep this fight in the upright position where he can continue pressuring Estevam, land those big punches on him, maybe find the knockout, but I'm going to be leaning decision here. But I think that he's just too skilled to get caught by this you know, aggressive juggernaut that Estevam has kind of made himself. He could be the goods, but I think that Zalgas is going to come in super determined. I think he has the style to stop that grapple-heavy approach from Estevam and then do big damage on the feet with his barrage of punches give me zuma gulov here and i'm gonna say by decision moving up to the middleweight division we got 12 and 4 phil haas going up against 13 and 1 ikram ali skarov starting off on the phil haas side he's looking to bounce back after getting knocked out by roman delize back in october that was on the back end of a win that he actually picked up over Duran Wynn back in June, where he absolutely obliterated Duran Wynn over about 
eight minutes before you eventually put him away near the ending of that second round. We're seeing those striking improvements from Phil Hawes where he's throwing combinations, throwing good head kicks and good kicks in general rather than just relying on a desperation takedown game to try to control his opponents or try to get that ground and pound victory from on top. Something that he looked for a lot more in the early parts of his career. But there is still a bit of a cardio issue and durability issue on the side of Phil Hawes which is why he just can't seem to get momentum going in his UFC career. He did have a three-fight winning streak to start his UFC career off, but over his last three fights, he is now one and two, with both of his losses coming by first-round knockout. He does obviously have a little bit of hype still left on him and a little bit of potential, but at 34 years old, he really has to get the ball rolling now, and I don't know if the UFC matched him up correctly this weekend for him to get that momentum rolling. He is going up against Ikram Aliaskarov, who most people would remember from actually losing to Hamzat Chmaev, at least being the most notable opponent on Hamzat Chmaev's pre-UFC record. And Chmaev was able to land a beautiful uppercut on him back in April of 2019. Now, that's the only loss on uh, Ikram's record as as of now. He's on a five-fight winning streak, which included his contender series uh, win, which earned him his UFC contract. He pulled off a pretty easy takedown against Souza and then locked up a Kumara very quickly and got the tap soon thereafter. His striking game still seems like it needs a little bit of work, but as you would expect with a guy with the background of Ali Skarov, he has a damn good wrestling uh, game that he's able to take his opponents to the ground, grind them out from on top. He has solid cardio as well, where we've seen him finish fights late as well, uh, and or even have to go the full 15 minutes while still controlling his opponent for the majority of the time. This guy looks like he has a good amount of potential, and at 30 years old, this could probably be the prime of his career, and I look forward to seeing how he does against a tested UFC veteran like Phil Hawes this weekend. I really think the only way Hawes wins this fight is if he, if he catches Ali Iskarov in the first round in this fight. He's going to be faster, he's going to be more explosive and have more power in the first four to five minutes of this fight. But if Ali Iskarov can wear on him, push him against the cage, maybe even land a couple takedowns, he should be able to slow down Hawes, take over in the latter half of this fight and eventually find a finish. I think that Ali Iskarov has some good potential, but he does lack a little bit in the striking realm, which is something that Phil Hawes can take advantage of early here, especially when they're fresh, especially when he's at his full facilities. But we've seen Hawes slow down. We've seen him succumb to pressure of his opponents. And I think that's what Ali Iskarov can do of, do here. I'm pick, picking the uh, Russian fighter to get his hand raised. And I think he does it inside the distance. Let's call it round two. We got the big boys on deck for this next matchup as heavyweights collide. We got 5-1 Braxton Smith going up against 13-8 Park Reporter. Starting off on the UFC debutante side here, Braxton Smith has an impressive 5-1 record with all five of his wins coming since May of last year. Apparently, he made his professional MMA debut back in 2014 where he ended up losing a fight to Chase Sherman in both of their debuts. He took off over eight years. I'm not entirely sure why, but the man looks like a brick shithouse. You'd think Husamar Parlaharis was the embodiment of a fire hydrant. Wait till you set your eyes on this guy. Braxton Smith is a very stocky 5'11", 275-pound heavyweight who throws nothing but heat in all of his strikes. His longest fight took him two minutes and three seconds to finally knock his opponent out, but the majority of his fights are done within a minute and a half. He's very explosive, very powerful with the strikes that he throws, but you know guys like that that are so heavily built like him more than likely will start to slow down if he's not able to get that knockout within the first couple minutes of his fights. However, given some of the level of heavyweights that we have in the UFC at this point in time, he might be able to pull off a couple victories, provide some highlight reel knockouts, and maybe even pick up a couple performance bonuses while he's at it. But as an overall MMA fighter, I just don't see this guy cracking that heavyweight, uh, you know, top five, even top 10. I just think that other guys are way too good. They will be able to stop the, the big punching power that he has early here, look to drag him to the ground and possibly have better success against him in, you know, just avoiding the big power that he's been showcasing throughout his career thus far. On the flip side for Parker Porter, he just got knocked out by Justin Taffa back in uh, February. It only took a minute and five second, seconds for Justin Taffa to find that counter left hook that starts Parker Porter and turned his lights out. 
Porter actually put together a solid three-fight winning streak between 2020 and 2022 before running into Jilton Almeida back in May of, uh, well, last year. Uh, you can give him a pass on that loss, obviously, considering it's Jilton freaking Almeida, who is actually headlining next weekend's fight night card. But then the Justin Toffa fight showcases that Parker Porter's lack of speed and possibly dwindling durability will end up being the you know, exit to his UFC career. He needs a win this weekend, especially against a UFC debut talented like Braxton Smith. Otherwise, I would not be surprised if the UFC looked to just cut him at this point in his career. He's 38 years old, turned, well, he just turned 38, but on a three-fight losing streak and more than likely having three back-to-back-to-back first-round knockout losses on his record, it probably doesn't spell too good for him if he's not able to get his hand raised this weekend. As much as I want to pick my guy Parker Porter here, I just don't think he's going to be able to evade the big strikes that are coming his way from Braxton Smith. I think Smith is heavily capped in terms of uh, his success at the UFC level. This might end up being his own only win as well. I could see Parker trying to come in and tie up Braxton and wear on those muscles and start to take over later in this fight. But given that we're getting a decent enough underdog price on Braxton, although I would likely target the knockout prop more than anything because there's no way this guy has a gas tank to go longer than three minutes um but you're getting good plus money you're getting good plus money on the knockout spot but even the under one and a half around minus 150 minus 160 at least at the time of this recording is a good spot i think that braxton will significantly slow down after the three minute mark of this fight and Parker Porter could pick it up and eventually get him out of there, probably finish him with the barrage of strikes. But I just don't know if Parker can deal with that big power like he couldn't deal with the big power from Justin Taffa just a couple months ago. I'm expecting Braxton, again, this might end up being his only UFC win, but I think he can put that big power on Parker Porter early here and knock him out. Give me Braxton by first round knockout, but under one and a half is probably what I'll like the most in this fight. From the heaviest weight class, we go all the way down to the lowest weight class in the UFC. We're going to be talking about the women's strawweights here with 16-2-2 Marina Rodriguez and 18-3 Verna Jandiroba. Starting off on the Marina Rodriguez side, she's coming off of a main event loss to Amanda Lemos back in November. That was on the back end of three straight main event wins for her over Michelle Watterson-Gomez, Mackenzie Dern, and Dian Nan. but Amanda Lemos's power ended up being too much for Marina Rodriguez. Now, I thought that was a very good fight for Rodriguez to get her hand raised. However, the very slow pace style in those first two rounds allowed Amanda Lemos to keep that power sustained over the course of 10 minutes and eventually uncorking that knockout blow in the third round to put Marina Rodriguez away. Rodriguez, at her best, utilizes her footwork and her combination striking to put big power on her opponents and at this point in her career she's done a very good job in terms of nullifying the grappling success her opponents are having against her that has kind of been the bane of her ufc career when opponents are able to get their grappling going but with experience comes improvements and that's exactly what we've been seeing from marina rodriguez over the last two to three years that she's been in the ufc on the flip side for Verna Jandiroba, she's on the back end of a win over Angela Hill last year where she was able to utilize her grappling to get her hand raised in that matchup. She showcased that night that she could still get fighters to the ground and do, do decent work from that top position and win opportune moments or at least significant moments that the judges will end up still giving her the, uh, the decision victory. Her striking has never really been her strong suit, but she's managed to utilize it effectively enough to crash the pocket and eventually get takedowns on her opponents where she's able to do some solid work from on top. She's one of the best BJJ specialists that we have in the women's strawweight division, and I believe it was really when she fought Mackenzie Dern where we saw two of the best BJJ specialists go at it. We didn't really see them mix it up in the grappling realm that much as Mackenzie Dern showcased superior striking that night to eventually win that fight by decision. Jani Roba could still have some decent wins up her sleeve, but she really relies on being able to drag fights to the ground so that she can get her hand raised in her matchups. It's tough to have major confidence in this matchup, given that I believe Verna needs a little bit more work on her wrestling game. I think Marina Rodriguez could 
do a good enough job in terms of keeping Jandy Roba on the edge of her punches, keeping her on the outside, utilizing her kicks to maintain that distance, keeping her at bay, and then uncorking with some one, two, three combinations on the feet so that she can damage and batter Verna Jandy Roba. Should this fight hit the mat, it's Jandy Roba's world. That's why I'm a little bit um skeptical in terms of being so confident on the Rodriguez side here I won't hate anybody taking the underdog shot on Jandy Roba she's skilled she could potentially get this to the ground but I'm hoping from the improvements that we've been seeing from Rodriguez over her last several fights she'll be able to keep this fight upright land the more significant strikes and get her hand raised by decision we got welterweights up next as we got 13-3 Chaos Williams going up against 14-1 Rolando Bedoya Starting off on the Chaos Williams side, it's going to be a year almost or at least a day shy of a year since the last time he stepped in the cage, which was a split decision loss to Randy Rude Boy Brown. That was a close fight where Chaos Williams had some success of his own in the early goings of that matchup and even had a solid moment in the third round, but it was Randy Brown who was able to put together much better overall moments and look like he was winning the majority of that matchup. It was a close fight, but it was a reminder to Chaos Williams that he still has a little bit to go in terms of making the improvements required to be successful at the top level of the welterweight division. Now, don't get me wrong. He is a far cry from the raw fighter that we saw back in 2020, who came off of quick victories over Alex Morono and Abdul Razak Al-Hassan before he ended up falling victim to the wacky style of Michel Pereira. However, Chaos Williams, like I said, has been making improvements, utilizing his power and harnessing it in an effective way where he doesn't just have it early, he can sustain it over 15 minutes to remain a threat to his opponent the entire time so that he can put combinations together, continue to march them down, and even if he doesn't get the knockout, he's still able to go out there and win solid minutes to eventually get his hand raised. Like I said, though, in his last matchup, he was just a little bit out-finessed by Randy Brown, who proved to be the overall better technical striker that night. On the flip side here, the UFC debutant Rolando Bedoya brings a very fun striking style to the UFC octagon. I don't think they could have matched him up better for this welterweight debut against a guy like Chaos Williams, and I'm expecting just that, Chaos. Bedoya has a very solid winning streak going right now as he only lost his fourth ever fight and since then has been undefeated. I believe that's eight, uh, 11 straight victories that he's managed to get his hand raised in and he's been finishing a lot of his opponents as well. He just hasn't been the most active as of late as there have been a lot of different circumstances that has kept him out of action. This is going to be his third fight since the COVID era, and you got to wonder what that layoff will potentially do for him, especially with the huge step up in competition he's going to be taking compared to what he's used to fighting on the regional scene. You know, if you just look at the record of his opponents from the past, they don't look that bad. But then you realize that a lot of those guys are going up against the tomato cans of the Latin America fighting scene, and he's just beating some of these guys that are, you know, not really all that great. But Bedoya has the aggressiveness and has the look of a guy that enjoys fighting and would love to come forward and put the pace and pressure on his opponents, eventually finding that knockout victory, which is something that he's synonymous with doing on the regional scene. Trains out of the same training camp as Charles Oliveira with the shoot-to-box Diego Lima guys down there in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I'm curious to see if his skills will translate to this higher level of competition when he makes his debut this weekend. This fight's going to be absolutely chaotic. And I'm going to go with a guy that has a little bit more high-level experience in Chaos Williams. Now, don't get me wrong, minus 300 I think is a little bit wild for a guy who's going to be going into a fight against an opponent who's willing to exchange in the pocket and throw down. I believe Chaos Williams does have the bigger knockout power here, and I think that his improvements in the technical aspects of his striking game will end up being a saving grace, but I see so many wild exchanges happening in this matchup that either guy is kind of a coin flip to win this fight. There is some value on the Bedoya side, in my opinion, but I think that the, taking the chalk on the fight doesn't go to decision. Probably going to be the best way to go here, but I'm going to go with the guy that's a little bit better or a little bit more battle-tested and has been a little bit more active during this COVID era as well. Give me Chaos Williams by knockout probably in the second round. Moving up to the heavyweight division, we got 11-3 Kennedy and Zetchuku going up against 14-7 Devin Clark. Starting off on the 
Kennedy and Zetchuku's side. He's coming off of a victory over Iwan Kutelaba, where he knocked him out in the second round back in November. That's two straight victories now for Kennedy and Zetchuku, who is on the back end of a two-fight losing streak. He's been able to finish his last two opponents, one by elbows from back mount against Carl Roberson, a fight where he took a very solid grapple-heavy approach, wore on Roberson, and then eventually finished him in the third round. And then in the next fight against Iwan Kutelaba, got a little bit outgrappled in the early going of that matchup. But then in the second round, Kutelaba was unable to secure another grappling dominant position, which allowed Kennedy and Zetchuku to let loose on big punches and big knees, which was the ultimate ending for Iwan Kutelaba that night. And Zetchuku, I've long believed, is just still a very raw fighter, but he's been making improvements over the last, you know, year or two of his career. A lot of that can be credited to his coach, Safe Sayud, down there at Fortis MMA. I think he's a solid fighter and he's really starting to come into his own, utilizing that big frame that he has for the light heavyweight division, harnessing his strikes and utilizing his power now compared to that, you know, pitter-patter style that he had from the early parts of his career. He's a big, strong guy that's really grown into his body now. And at 30 years old, you got to believe that he's trying to set himself up for a run amongst the ranked light heavyweights. And we'll see if he can continue that run this weekend against his opponent, Devin Clark, who is looking to get a win streak going as well. Through 15 fights in the UFC, Devin Clark has had a roller coaster of a career thus far. He's 8-7 through those 15 fights, never having anything longer than a two-fight winning streak. He's trying to get another two-fight winning streak going this weekend after he was able to pick up a decision victory over Daun Jung back in February. Pretty quick turnaround here with him fighting three months later. But in that Daun Jung fight, we saw him use his patented grapple-heavy approach. He wasn't able to complete a lot of takedowns that night, but or at least even get a lot of control in terms of on the ground. But he did a very good job in terms of pinning Daun Jung up against the cage doing his small chippy choppy shots to try to just stay active and land damage on Jung and he did a great job in terms of nullifying the big power that was coming his way as well. I can never really get the Devin Clark fights right because sometimes he just goes out there and gets finished almost immediately and then other times he takes big shots from his opponents and continues to move forward with his grapple heavy approach and clinch heavy approach and win decisions. Like you'd expect him to get finished by guys like Alonzo Menafield and William Knight and even Daun Jung in terms of the, the power that those guys bring but he was able to walk through all their shots and implement his game and still get his hand raised. But then he goes out there and loses to guys like Iwan Kutilaba, Anthony Smith, and then Azamat Mirzakhanov, which is not a bad loss considering he's still undefeated to this point. But Devin Clark, a wild card. Very tough fighter to read, but we know what his strengths are. We'll see if he can implement it once again this weekend over Kennedy and Zetchuku. Like I said earlier, it's so hard for me to get a Devin Clark fight right that I have very little confidence in this matchup. But I'm going to go with the Kennedy and Zetsuku uh, side here to bring Devin Clark's uh, record or UFC record back to 500 at 8-8. Eight and eight. I think Kennedy will be able to nullify the majority of that clinch and grappling success from Devin Clark. It might be sticky early, but I think the longer that this goes, we'll see Kennedy be able to keep this fight at distance and then eventually land big enough shots to get Devin Clark out of there. I think that Clark still has durability issues. It will show itself every now and then. And I think Kennedy has gained enough confidence throughout his UFC career now that he believes in himself and that he believes that he can put these guys away. I think that he'll do that here against Devin Clark or Clark just ends up grapple fucking him up against the cage and winning this fight by decision. But in terms of prediction, I'm going to go with the... Uh, I believe his, well, Nigerian nightmare is Kamaru Usman. I was going to call that Kennedy. I know that Kennedy is from Nigeria as well, but I'm going to go in Zetsuko here by uh, late first round stoppage. We got the prelim headliner up next here, and it takes place in the lightweight division. We got 26-11 Drew Dober going up against 10-3-1 Matt Steamrolla Fervola. Starting off on the Drew Dober side here, he's on a run. He's on a three-fight winning streak now, which is the longest that he's had in the UFC, a winning streak that he's seen two times before. Let's see if he can finally break through and get that fourth straight victory, something that has eluded him throughout his UFC career. He's a veteran at this point in time, as his first UFC fight came back way back in November of 2013, so he's coming up on the 10-year anniversary of his UFC debut. 
but he's been on a pretty solid roll as of late with victories over Terrence McKenney, Rafael Alves, and most recently Bobby Green back in December, all coming via finish. Drew Dober has been a very solid striker. I believe he had a Muay Thai background coming into the MMA game, but he's putting together a solid grappling heavy approach whenever he requires it. But don't get me wrong, the vast majority of his success comes from his striking, his explosiveness, his speed, and his tenacity in terms of always being able to crash the pocket with big strikes. He was getting touched up, let's be honest, by by Bobby Green for the better part of a, you know six, seven minutes of their matchup. But it seemed like Dobro was getting closer and closer with the big shots that he was trying to throw at Bobby Green, eventually landing on him with the beautiful left hook midway through the second round. He's going up against Matt Favola this weekend, who's looking to put together his third straight victory as well. One thing is certain with Matt Favola whenever he steps into the cage, even when fights end up going the full 15 minutes, he goes out there and he throws down. He has some durability issues to a certain extent, but he's been able to pull off back-to-back first-round knockout victories over big hitters Gennaro Valdez and Otman Azaitar. Fravola also has a very solid grappling game where he has underrated jiu-jitsu but very good wrestling in terms of being able to grab guys, drag them to the mat and do good damage from on top. But it seems like he enjoys throwing his fists over his last couple fights which is why he's been able to pick up first round knockout victories. Let's see if he can do it again this weekend against Drew Dober. We have so many fights on this card that are going to be complete fireworks. I've already covered a couple of them, but this one could take the cake in terms of being fight of the night. Both of these guys are willing to throw down and put themselves on the line to possibly end up going out on their shield. But I think it's going to be Drew Dober, who's just a little bit quicker to the target, a little bit more explosive, and a little bit, well, I already said it, he's quicker than Matt Frivola, and that will allow him to land cleanly on Frivola here and put him out. I'm you know, just somewhat skeptical of the fact that Frivola might look to implement a grapple-heavy approach. I think that Dobra has good enough defensive grappling that he could likely nullify the amount of success that Frivola will have in those spots. But again, I'm a little bit sketched out by you know the the big public love out there on Drew Dober normally when he's set up in a spot like this he ends up fumbling the bag but I feel like fight doesn't go to decision is something that will end up hitting here especially with the amount of pocket exchanges I expect both of these guys will be willing to being willing to engage in which will transpire in a knockout I'm gonna go the Drew Dober side but my favorite spot in this fight will end up being the fight doesn't go to decision We got an intriguing featherweight bout kicking off the main card here as we have returning 5-1 Cron Gracie going up against 13-6-1 Charles Jourdain. Starting off on the Cron Gracie side, it's been nearly three and a half years since we've seen him step foot inside the octagon. The last time around we saw him, he picked up his first ever professional MMA loss. I don't know if it's picked up, I guess I should say dropped his first ever professional fight as he lost to Cub Swanson who was able to uh, pretty much dance around him and beat him up on the feet. It was a very weird style that we saw from Cron Gracie as he only attempted two takedowns in the final frame of this fight. Zero through the first 10 minutes of the fight, which is absurd considering how high level of a BJJ black belt he is and knowing that the majority of his success would come from being able to get fights to the ground and looking for that submission. But he was already too beat up and slowed down by the time that he started looking for takedowns in the latter half of this fight, which allowed Cub Swanson to get his hand raised pretty easily that night. Hopefully, Kron Gracie has been working on his uh, wrestling and even working on his striking to the extent that he could crash the pocket with some punches to eventually drag fights to the ground. Because he is a fun jiu-jitsu player to watch. And at 34 years old, you know, if he's still fighting, he probably has hopes that he can make it to the top of this division. But he's really got to hone in on utilizing his advantages in his matchups. So I'm curious to see if he's made those improvements over the last three and a half years and if he can implement them effectively enough on the flip side for Charles Jordan this guy doesn't say no to anybody he's on a two-fight losing streak to Shane Burgos and Nathaniel Wood and now takes another dangerous fight in Kron Gracie Jordan is a guy that I've been following since the amateur scene and he's always been exciting just as he showcased over his last couple of fights Obviously, he got a little muzzled by Nathaniel Wood last time around as Wood did a great job in terms of striking with him and then blending in his takedowns behind it to nullify Charles Jordan on the mat. 
that has been Charles Jordan's kryptonite in his career. That's why we saw striker Shane Burgos look to utilize his grappling to get his hand raised against Jordan back in July. And that was the best and easiest way to beat Jordan. We've seen many fighters in the past utilize that approach, but Jordan will likely always have a spot on the UFC roster as long as he doesn't really go on a maybe four or five fight losing streak, considering he always brings the entertainment, flashy strikes, and is just known to put on a show every time he steps inside the cage. But he's really got to round out the rest of his game. He can't just be a flashy, entertaining striker if he hopes to maintain his position in the UFC roster. I'm hoping that the Cub Swanson fight was a big learning lesson for Krongis Gracie. He cannot have only two takedown attempts in a fight and expect to be successful in it. Unless one of those two attempts is successful and he ends up getting the submission. That's one way. But I'm hoping that he showcases more of a, a aggressive takedown approach here. You know, he doesn't have to be super technical about it. Just get his hands around his opponent, push him up against the cage, and it's just a matter of time before they eventually give up their back. And that's what I think Charles Jordan will eventually end up doing here. We've seen it time and time again that the grapple-heavy approach is the way to beat a flashy striker like Jordan. And I feel like a guy as high level as Kron Gracie can eventually find him in one of those positions and lock up, lock up a submission. It's a tricky thing to try to trust a guy that's been coming off a three-year-long, three-and-a-half-year-long layoff like Kron is. But given how smooth he is in the jiu-jitsu realm, let's just hope that he's just he has this this aggressiveness to him that will get him into that clinch and eventually find himself a submission. Give me Crone by submission round one. Sticking with the featherweights here, we got 16-0 Movzer Evloyev going up against 15-1 Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell. Starting off on the Ivloyev side, he's finally getting the respect I have long believed he's deserved, especially with higher level opponents and higher ranked opponents finally accepting to fight him. Last time around in June, we saw him destroy Dan Ige on the feet, and Ige actually had a little bit of success of his own. Actually, sorry, I'm getting it confused with the Duadu fight, as Duadu had success in the third round against Ivloyev after landing a couple big shots. But Mozart Ivloyev pitched pretty much a perfect game against Dan Ige, outstriking him and outgrappling him. Ivloyev, in my opinion, is one of the top guys in this featherweight division who is not getting enough credit given his skill set. For God's sakes, the guy is 16-0. and 0. The American top team crew over there has done a very good job in terms of rounding out his game. You see him coming into the UFC mainly as a grappler, but as he's gotten more comfortable down there in South Florida, he's been honing his striking game and utilizing it perfectly to blend his wrestling behind it. He's a very good overall fighter and a former champion of some of these uh, of M1 Challenge, which is one of the higher level regional Russian promotions, which I'm not 100% sure if they're still around. But back in the day, trust me, they were one of the better guys out there compared to the ACAs that are out there now. But uh, Mozart Ivloyev, very high level fighter. And I think a win over Bryce Mitchell this weekend could potentially remind folks that this guy is someone that we should be keeping our eye on. Speaking of Bryce Mitchell, he's coming off his first ever professional MMA loss, at least, you know, from something that the professional record keepers are keeping track of. He did lose to Brad Katona via third round rear naked choke, but that fight did not really count on his record as it was on the ultimate fighter. But against Bryce, sorry, against Ilya Taporia last time around, he couldn't get his grappling game going. And we saw Ilya Taporia absolutely destroy him on the feet, especially in that second round where he was able to get that club and sub victory and lock up that arm triangle choke to get the tap from Bryce. We know what Bryce brings to the table. Smothering grappling, you know, a very slick and unorthodox Brazilian jiu-jitsu game and not very good striking at all. You know, a lot of it, is just forward movement, throwing shots out there to stay busy, trying to keep something in front of his opponent or on his opponent to keep his opponent thinking, and then he'll eventually just change levels, get the takedown, and do work from on top. It's only going to work against a certain level, right? Like, I do think that Mitchell is a top 10, top 15 fighter, but there are going to be guys like Ilya Taporia who will be able to stop that and make him pay on the feet. I look forward to seeing if there are any improvements that Bryce Mitchell will be looking to make. I just don't know how much improvement that he can make in you know the five months that it's going to have been since the last time that he took center stage in the UFC octagon. 
I love Ivloyev in this spot. Now I can already sense that people this week are going to be like, oh, like look at the close grappling exchanges he's had in the past against guys like Mike Grundy and even Nick Lentz. But I, I just... The one consistent is that Ivloev always ends up coming out on top in terms of being able to be the one that is a step ahead of his opponent, even if he ends up giving a minute or two of control time to his opponent. He's getting so much better with his striking game. I believe his defensive grappling will allow him to stay upright for the majority of this fight and then land the more significant damage on the feet so that he can get ahead of Bryce Mitchell in this spot. I really believe that Ivoev could find himself in a title fight by this time next year if he can remain active enough, if he can get opponents or top-ranked opponents to continuously accepting fight against fights against him, and if he continues this progression that he's had, especially since being with the American top team. Give me Ivoev by decision, and I think it looks quite dominant if I'm being honest. Next up in the women's strawweight division, we got Jessica Andrade coming in with a 24-10 record, going up against 16-3 Yan Jiaonan. Starting off on the Jessica Andrade side, she's coming off of a loss to Aaron Blanchfield back in February, and it looks like she wants to get right back into the cage to try to right the wrong of her last fight. This is actually going to be the third walk to the octagon for her this year as she did pick up a very dominant victory over Lauren Murphy back in January at UFC 283. She took the short notice opportunity against Aaron Blanchfield after Tyler Santos was forced to pull out and it turned out to not be the correct move for her being that it was a very quick turnaround. I believe it was just three weeks it took her for to take that next fight but Aaron Blanchfield ended up being too much for her. But Jessica Andrade is still one of the top fighters in the strawweight division. Her combination of just forward movement, big power, big striking, and even takedowns that she's able to land with not the most technical approach, but more powerful approach is very difficult for a lot of fighters to deal with. She's very strong. She's very powerful. And just, again, that that pace, that pressure, that, that hard-nosed striking style is so hard for opponents to get comfortable with to get their own offense off. That's why I think she's always going to be lingering around that top five to top ten of the division just because of her, you know, the, the the aggressiveness she brings to the table. A lot of fighters are unable to match that. They'll have to be way better than her, technically speaking, to get the triumph over her. Just to prove that point, her only losses since 2016 have been to Yuani and Jacek, Wiley Zhang, Rose Namajunas, Valentina Shevchenko, and Aaron Blanchfield. Five fighters who are all former or current or even future title holders in the UFC. On the flip side, for Yan Xiaonan, she's coming off of a victory over Mackenzie Dern, which was a main event back in October, where she was able to utilize her striking to land the better damage against Mackenzie Dern and even showed a new wrinkle to her game in terms of showcasing very good submission defense. Even after getting controlled for close to nine minutes in that fight against Dern, Yan Xiaonan was still able to get her hand raised. She she stuffed, I believe, 9 out of 11 takedown attempts from Mackenzie Dern, but it was most important for her to stay out of bad submission spots on the ground when she was on the ground, and she did a very good job in terms of doing so. She did have a two-fight losing streak before that where she got finished by Carla Esparza and lost a decision to Marina Rodriguez, but I am curious to see how much more improvements we can see from Yan Jonan, especially with her teaming up with the Team Alpha Male uh, crew. She's 33 years old, she'll be 34 next month, but her striking style with big power and big combinations is very difficult to deal with for a lot of fighters as well. It's weird, because it looks like she throws with a lot of power, but she doesn't have that many knockout finishes on her record, at least since joining the UFC. She doesn't have any wins by knockout since joining the UFC. All, what is that, three, six... Seven, I believe it's seven wins, seven or eight wins that she's had in the UFC, all of them coming by decision, but all of them being focused around a striking heavy game plan. She's a fun fighter, but I'm curious to see how she does against the top of the division as she's now likely going to be fighting top five to ten talent for the you know foreseeable future. A part of me feels like there could be some value on the Yan Nan side here if she can keep this fight upright, utilize her combinations, and keep Jessica Andrade at distance. However, I think that Andrade will be successful in crashing the pocket here, landing her big strikes, and eventually dragging this fight to the ground. I believe she can even get a ground and pound finish. There are people that will be like, hey, 
We had Mackenzie Dern get nine minutes of control time against Yan, and she was unable to get the finish. What makes you think that a girl like Jessica Andrade will be able to do that? Well, Carla Esparza was able to get a TKO over Yan Jonan. And I'm sure that Yan has improved since that fight. But I think that the strength and the top pressure that Jessica Andrade brings will be difficult for Yan to deal with. That will allow Jessica to get into a dominant position, start raining down big blows, maybe even open up a submission opportunity for herself. But I think that this fight will, a lot of it will be predicated on Jessica Andrade getting this to the ground. Because she won't be able to beat her just on the feet. She's going to get tagged up. She's going to get hurt. But... I'm hoping that Jessica knows that and she'll be able to close that distance, drag this to the ground and do her significant damage from on top. Give me Andrade via ground and pound. Up next is a short notice five round welterweight matchup that has very high stakes attached to it. We got 22-3 Bilal Muhammad going up against 22-5 Gilbert Burns. Starting off on the Bilal Muhammad side, who is on a very solid run since taking his last defeat in January of 2019 at the hands of Jeff Neal. Since then, we've seen him rattle off eight straight victories as we also have a no contest sprinkled in there against now champion Leon Edwards. But Bilal Muhammad has been improving at an extremely fast rate and showcasing that he's deserving of a welterweight title shot. However, for some reason, whatever it might be, the UFC is not convinced that he deserves it. But a showcase bout here against Gilbert Burns will more than likely be what he needs to convince the UFC brass that he is more than more than deserving of that title shot. The most convincing aspect, at least to this date, is the fact that he took the O away from Sean Brady last time around by defeating him via TKO in the second round. That fight took place at UFC 280 back in October, but has been, you know, the last thing amongst the very impressive resume he's been putting together over the last couple of years. We're talking about avenging a loss to Vicente Luque, completely shutting out Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, and doing great work against a guy like Damian Maya. But Bilal Muhammad is showcasing something that I really enjoy seeing from the top of guys at the welterweight division. Kamaru Usman in his prime and Kobe Covington very much relied on a grapple-heavy approach, cardio-heavy approach, but a lot of pressure and volume to keep their opponents on the defensive. I believe that is what it takes to get your hand raised at this point in the welterweight division, although... Uh, uh, Leon Edwards did a great job in terms of stuffing the takedowns and that pressure of Kamaru Usman to get his hand raised last time around but I believe that is a very good style that Bilal Muhammad uses taking from those guys that I mentioned previously and implementing it into his own game plan not to mention the guy has the gas tank to go 25 minutes if required to really put the pace and pressure on his opponents and win just off of volume. If his durability is in check and his cardio is in check, he will more than likely always be a tough out for the top five of this division. On the flip side, for Gilbert Burns, he's making a quick turnaround as he actually just fought last month at the last pay-per-view at UFC 283 where he dismantled Jorge Masvidal over 15 minutes. Now that was a fight where I thought there was some value on Jorge Masvidal in that plus 350 range, but I really wasn't expecting to see as flat of a version as I did from Jorge that night. The big question mark that I've had about Gilbert Burns in the past is that I don't think that his cardio was that great. We've seen him slow down in the last half of most of his matchups, especially when opponents are able to get their hand raised. But if there are guys that can put pace on him, put a pressure on him, I think that's where we'll be able to see that cardio issue come back to life. But he's been on a decent roll, even though he lost fights to Kamaru Usman and Hamzat Shemaev over his last six fights. He's still been able to pick up wins over Wonderboy Thompson and Neil Magny, who are still, you know, solid guys within this division, in my opinion. This will be his third walk to the octagon this week and uh, for, uh, sorry, in 2023. And we'll see if he can position himself for another welterweight title shot, especially with the big win over a guy like Bilal Muhammad. Look for big, heavy strikes in the Muay Thai form from Gilbert Burns. Some, you know, a, a skill that he's very much improved upon since coming in the UFC. But don't get me wrong, his bread and butter is when he's able to land takedowns and do solid work from on top with his highly acclaimed BJJ black belt. Now with me predicting Bilal Muhammad to win this fight, I think people are just going to be like, you know, I have something out for Gilbert Burns, which is why I never end up picking him, or at least don't think I pick him in most fights. I picked him against Neil Magny. I knew that was an easy fight for him to get his hand raised. But here against uh, Bilal, I think it's going to be a tricky one. 
As long as Bilal can keep his durability about him, as long as he can roll with the shots and not get finished in the early goings of this matchup, I think his pace, pressure, cardio, and just pace, uh, well, I, th I think I said pace twice. <laughs> but either way, that's what this fight's going to be about. Pace, staying in Gilbert Burns' face, not letting him breathe. You know, th that's why I thought Masvidal, I thought his takedown defense would be good enough so that he can do his work on the feet, but it just seemed like he was completely flat. But I'm expecting a much better version here of Bilal Muhammad to expose the cardio disadvantage that Gilbert Burns will have in this fight. And just to expose that Gilbert Burns is not as great as most people think. Like, he's a good fighter. He's a top 5-7 to seven welterweight. But I think he struggles against guys that can implement what Bilal Muhammad can do. Again, Bilal, not much of a fan favorite, which is wild to me. The guy's very entertaining on social media. And he's also, uh, you know, a, a very talented fighter. But I think a fight like this, a win in this spot, will probably give him the recognition that he deserves. I think that this is a spot that he can go out there, put Gilbert Burns through the grinder, and finish him probably in the fourth or fifth round of this matchup. Give me, give me Bilal Muhammad short notice or not i think he'll always have the cardio and gas tank to implement the fight that he needs to get his hand raised what he did to vicente luque what he did to sean brady what he did to wonderboy thompson i think he can do the same thing here against gilbert burns just can't get clipped early that's my only concern otherwise i think he cruises in this matchup and i think he makes that plus 120 look like maybe the easiest plus 120 of the year we'll see how it looks though but give me Bilal Muhammad via TKO in round four or round five. And it is now time for the main event of the evening where we got the bantamweight title on the line with Aljamain Sterling looking to defend his title for the third time. He comes in with a 22-3 record. He's going up against the king of cringe, Triple C, the returning Henry Cejudo who comes in with a 16-2 record. Starting things off on the Aljamain Sterling side, he's been looking in very good form since dropping his last fight back in December of 2017 to Marlon Moraes, but since then has been able to put together eight straight victories, which included his title-winning effort against Pierre Jan, defending against Pierre Jan, and then defeating TJ Dillashaw back in October. Now I get it, I, don't, I should maybe put an asterisk beside that first Piotr Jan fight given the way that fight went down and him winning the title via legal knee but he showcased a very good fight IQ and great game planning in his second fight so that he could pick up that victory over Piotr Jan. There are a couple different ways that Sterling has looked to approach his fights to try to get his hand raised. Most notably, the Pedro Munoz fight. We saw him on his bicycle for the majority of that matchup where he was able to land kicks and punches from the outside while evading the big striking style of Pedro Munoz. Or we've also seen him take the grapple-heavy approach like he did against Corey Sandhagen to get him out of there relatively quickly. Or even against Piotr Jan where he was able to rack up two rounds and then use that Pedro Munoz game plan in the first round to just glide on the outside and pick apart Piotr Jan where Piotr was unable to hit him in return. And then the TJ Dillashaw fight, that one kind of has an asterisk beside it as well, considering that Dillashaw came in there with a compromised shoulder, and we could tell that he was injured pretty much within the first two minutes of that fight. I just felt bad for it almost immediately, as Aljamain Sterling is still looking to solidify himself as the bantamweight GOAT. Well, not GOAT, sorry. GOAT is a stretch. Right? Let me backpedal on that real quick. At least... Uh, you know, prove himself as a true bantamweight king as he did win his title, uh, obviously from that illegal knee. It was a split decision over Pierre Jan and then the TJ Dillashaw fight has its own controversy in his own right. A win this weekend over former bantamweight champion Henry Cejudo could be what he needs to solidify himself as the best bantamweight on the planet. Henry Suhudo has long teased that he was going to eventually make his return and now here he is three years later after defeating Dominic Cruz to defend his bantamweight title for the, for the first time actually. He obviously gave it up after he won that fight and re retired, citing that he, I believe, wanted a better contract, wanted a stiffer challenge, and now being out of the cage for over three years, I believe he has found that challenge that he wanted in Aljamain Sterling. Suhudo, obviously known for his Olympic wrestling background, showcased a very good striking style throughout his career and showcasing that the guys over there at Fight Ready have really rounded out his game, which has made him so successful. So successful to the point that he beat his arch nemesis, Demetrius Johnson, for the flyweight title back in August of 2018, defended it against TJ Dillashaw, and that's when he started his campaign up there at Bantamweight. 
It's unfortunate that it was short-lived as he only had two fights beating Marlon Moraes and Dominic Cruz. And I think a lot of people would have loved to see him go out there and defeat some of the other top-flight bantamweights, even Piotr Jan, when Jan was in his prime. But at 36 years old, Triple C is trying to come back and try to be quadruple C, as I believe the, the plan for him is if he beats Aljamain Sterling, he wants to move up to featherweight to try to take on Alexander Volkanovsky. But he has a stiff test in Aljamain Sterling. He's going to have to utilize his grappling defensively if he looks to get his hand raised in this matchup and also look to utilize his big power punching style and his calf kicking game to try to beat him on the feet as well. I'm very much looking forward to seeing if there are any new wrinkles to Henry Suhudo's game and how this three-year layoff could have potentially impacted his performance when he steps inside the cage. I'm having a hard time thinking that Aljamain Sterling can secure that back control like he did against Purion here against Henry Suhudo. Suhudo is very difficult to get a hold of and even more difficult to try to win wrestling and grappling exchanges against him. Aljamain Sterling is obviously one of the best when it comes to Brazilian jiu-jitsu and controlling guys, you know, the human jan sport as he calls himself. But I think that Suhudo is you know, explosive enough, he's wiry enough in terms of just staying away from those types of positions and then landing his big strikes with his striking with some good, um, uh, sorry, with his punches, with his kicks, that calf kick, I think is going to be very important for him to implement here against the longer Aljamain Sterling, who could even look to try to utilize that Pedro Munoz style to win this fight, staying on the outside and using his kicks so that Suhudo can't reach him. But I think he's going to struggle to deal with the, the speed of Suhudo, the explosivity of Suhudo, and then the defensive grappling of Suhudo. I'm hoping that Suhudo hasn't you know, regressed too much after being out of the cage for as long as he has. But if he comes by even 90% of what he used to be, I think he has a very good performance here and makes it kind of look easy against Aljamain Sterling. And I think that he could even produce a knockout for Suhudo in the spot. So give me Suhudo and you against Aljamain Sterling I'm going to say knockout, probably third or fourth round of this matchup. And there you guys go. All 14 fights broken down for you. Hopefully you guys enjoy the breakdowns as I'm assuming most of you always do. A reminder that the MMA Fight Archive is now live. Link in the description below. Top comment as well. If you get there early enough, you might be able to get one of those 20 spots available for the discounted 25% off for the lifetime of your subscription. Check it out. If you do your own research, it is a must-have. I promise you will not be disappointed. All right. Uh, again, later this week, Thursday, uh, Lockheed Trinity, which I really got to get back on track. It's just some small slip ups that just keep fucking it over, but I'm got to get a dub this weekend. And then uh, Friday, three best prop bets, looking to cast a couple more props for you guys. And yeah, that's pretty much about it. Appreciate all the love. Appreciate all the support. Have a great week, guys. And I'll see you guys on Thursday. Peace. Last thing, but...